Ephesians 6, verses, we'll go ahead and do verses 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taken up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And if this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Father, as we come to your word, as we continue to worship you and to exalt you, Lord, we pray that this sword of the Spirit, you would use it in our own hearts and our own minds to convict us, to encourage us, to save the sinner, to help the saint to mature in Christ, Lord. May we truly meet with you by your grace through the power of your Spirit working through your word. For Christ's sake, amen. We are a people at war. This is 9-11, and over 20 years ago, the Twin Towers were attacked, and thousands of people died, and war was declared by the U.S. on terrorism, and not, not making a political statement, but hundreds of thousands of people died. In a sense, we are a people of war. We won our independence from England through war. We've always, in some sense, been a people of war. But not just in a military sense. Even in a political and moral sense, we can be at war. The White House just nominated, put into office as director over monkeypox, a man that is a homosexual and wears pentagrams. I think his first name is Dimitri. We are a people that are in many different theaters of war. We just got through a virus war for two, three years. It seems like there's always a war of some kind going on somewhere, which is what Christ talked about, that there would be. While not downplaying the seriousness of any of those who were, all of the deaths and fatality and brutalness of any of these wars, there has always been an ongoing war since Genesis chapter 3. Always. There has been war. And even now, every person in this room, it doesn't even matter how old you are, you are in one sense a warrior. 
a soldier, a, a person that is in a war that is more brutal, more devastating, because how you fight or how you don't fight and which side you are on will determine your eternal destiny forever and forever. And it can seem to be a secret war because we don't always see it, but it actually is the most real war. And it's the most devastating war. And if we don't understand that, then we're going to lose. Now, as believers, by God's grace, he's rescued us, redeemed us, delivered us, and we're on his side. And we are saved, and he will finish the work that he's began in us, and greater is he than is in us than that is in the world. Having said that, though, for us to really fully live out our Christianity, and as John ended Sunday school, 1 John 2, 28, we want to live in such a way that when Christ comes back or we pass away, we're not ashamed. How do we do that? Well, we have to fight well, and we have to fight to win. We fight to win. We fight from the moment we are saved until that last breath that we breathe. We fight sin and Satan to win. And if you don't fight sin and Satan, then you're, you're losing. Satan is a roaring lion seeking people to devour. And if he can't have your soul, then he'll want to ruin your Christian life. What benefit does Satan and sin promise you, Christian? What benefit? Is there any benefit that sin and Satan truly, truly can give you? There's none. Sin and Satan want to suck your soul dry and to make you a miserable Christian. And so God is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus and encouraging them to fight to win. Not each other, but to fight sin and Satan and to fight to win. That's why we have here, verse 12 of chapter 6, for our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against the world forces. That is Satan and his demons as he works through the world system and through temptation. We need to focus on fighting him and fighting that kind of war. Fight to win against sin and Satan. Now, in this passage, we have looked at it some years ago, and you can go back and listen to the messages or read Martin Larry Jones or, or MacArthur or Big or wh- whoever. But in this passage this morning, we're and next week as well, we're going to look at means of how to fight and how to fight victoriously. Because in this passage, especially 14 through 18 is what we're going to focus on, means to to stand. And you can see that in verse 13, take up the form of God, and then at the end, so you can stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, and then how you do that. And these are illustrations that Paul is using through the Spirit of God on how to stand firm against the devil and not to fall back and to retreat, but keep going forward in Christ. Now, before we look at these different means, just four little pre-points, and think of like a frame, like a picture frame. So all these different illustrations are in this painting, but around the painting there's a frame. And this will just be super quick. 
Just looking at the frame that these illustrations will come in. First part of the frame is all of your life is a spiritual war. That's why I believe it says finally. Finally. It's not the idea of finally, well, this is the least important point. But after talking about raising kids and kids obeying your parents and husbands laying down their life for their wife, about walking in the Spirit and not getting drunk and forgiving one another and not lying. After doing all that, he says, now summarizing, finally coming to the main point, finally coming to what I'm, I'm really seeking to try to get across to you is you are in a spiritual war. All of life is a spiritual war. And I've mentioned this before, that oftentimes in the Christian life, we can think that spiritual war, for example, and, and I think to a... Certainly, there's a degree of truth to this. Uh, the White House nominated a man that is into pentagrams, wearing them on his body, and a very visible homosexual. That, that is a type of spiritual war. But we can almost take that and set that outside of us when on the way to church, you probably had a spiritual war. On the way home from church, you might have had a spiritual war. Today in your home, you will have a spiritual war. Maybe last night, you had a spiritual war. Every All of the Christian life is war. Hopefully not war with one another. But every time temptation comes your way, that's a battle. And we can regulate spiritual warfare as to something maybe that's very explicit and and very in your face. But oftentimes, Satan is more clever, more subtle. And he's going around, he's outflanking and going in as an angel of light, seeking to seduce us by fraud instead of by force. So all the Christian life is spiritual warfare. Also, another part of this frame, spiritual warfare is very intense and very personal. You can see verse 12, it says struggle. And that's the idea of uh, face-to-face wrestling. When I grew up, I had three older brothers. I was the baby. They used to wrestle me all the time. Hold me down. These two hold me down. They take a piece of thread. They take a piece of thread and they said, I can hold you down with a piece of thread. This is what David said. I said, No, you can't. I was, I was like nine years old. You can't hold me down with a piece of thread. So he was able to hold me down with a piece of thread just across my nose bridge right here. It hurt so much to get up. You know, it's how high I couldn't do it. But in one sense, it was fun because, you know, you're always wrestling. Have you, have you grown up wrestling? Thomas and Ellie wrestle sometimes. I try to wrestle them. They're, they're getting, Ellie is getting tough with wrestling. Thomas is super strong. It's this kind of intense struggle. It's this, some of you have done jiu-jitsu or high school wrestling, things like that. This is what Paul is talking about when it says here in verse 12, our struggle. It's this idea that Paul is saying each one of us actually, we do have an intense wrestling face-to-face combat with temptation and sin. Each of us. Nobody in this room is at a place in their life where they can say, I'm getting to a place where I never have struggled with anything in my life. You're a liar. Every person here has some sin that they struggle with. Every single person. Jesus fought against temptation. He never sinned. He fought against external temptation If Jesus fought against external temptation, we're going to fight against external and internal temptation. All of us do. It's very intense. That's another part of this frame. 
All Christianity, all life is warfare. It's very intense. But God has made provision. And you can see this in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God. Verse 13, take up the full armor of God so to be able to resist. God has given provision. And we'll be talking about this provision and these illustrations that we'll see in a moment. All of Christian warfare is war against sin and Satan. That's very intense. It's very personal. And it can be very specific to you, right? Some of your temptations are not necessarily the same exact as my temptations. Similar, but not the exact same. God, however, has provided provision that we can use to withstand that onslaught. And then the final frame that we see here is this this means to be able to stand. And that is when you look at verse 14, it says, therefore, stand firm. And then it gives these what's called adverbial participle phrases. Having girded your loins with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and so forth. That is, this passage is very clearly saying, stand firm. As soon as you see this dragon called the devil, as soon as you feel that temptation by force or fraud, don't retreat. Stand firm. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. Hold the line. Don't give in. Now, here's the way that you do that. Here are the means of doing that. That's being depicted with these words, verse 14, having, having, verse 15, having, and even 16, taking up the shield of faith. So these following verses out of verse 14 are depicting how we fight Satan victoriously. Now, we've already looked at one of them couple of weeks ago, though not ignoring that one, we're not going to have it in the outline. We're going to start a new outline, and the first means then is this. By fastening your worldview with God's written word, like you fasten a belt around your waist, we do the same thing, but that, that belt, as it were, is the very word of God. And we take this out of verse 14 when it says, having girded your loins with truth. Appropriate for yourself that authoritative, external, objective, divine narrative that God has given us, the Bible. So what exactly is this? Well, you're very familiar with probably Ephesians and Romans. and The Romans had these, maybe the shield, but almost be something like this if this went all the way down a big rectangle maybe about three feet by one feet that they could hide behind from spears from swords and from arrows it was a defensive construction to i'm getting ahead of myself i'm talking about the shield that will come later i'm excited to talk about the shield this is the belt they would have a shield but they would also have a sword and they would have other kinds of equipment and they would have this belt and they would even have, some of you are Scottish, they would even have a type of a Scottish kilt. It wasn't a kilt, but like Roman soldiers would basically wear a skirt. Okay, 
And when they fought, they would take that skirt oftentimes and put it in their belt. And then their belt could hold a sword and a dagger. And if it wasn't, if that belt wasn't tied tight, what would happen? They could falter. They could fall. All of the equipment could be all on the ground. Now, we have similar things today. You can have a handyman, and a handyman has his construction belt. And on that belt, he has all kinds of tools that he sticks in here. Well, if that falls off and falls down, there could be problems. We even have today, we have war belts. If you ever go to a shooting range or if you ever take some type of training with handguns or rifles, some guys come and they've never been in, in the military ever, but they have these big vests on and they have these big training things and all this ammo and canteens and all, knives and they're all decked out. It's a war belt. And the idea is that you have these things on you because you might have need of all these different types of equipment. And if it's not tied on tight and it's not secure, you could fall, you could falter, you could have a lot of problems. And this is what's being communicated by the Spirit of God through Paul. But here, if you look at verse 14, it's gird up your loins, that is your waist, with truth. And in context, this would be the word of God. It would be the word of truth. Even in chapter 1, verse four, verse 13, to the message of truth. In Ephesians 4, verse 15, he says, speaking in truth. We know that Jesus says in John 17, thy word is truth. Seems clear here that Paul is saying that stand firm, therefore, because you've tied your your, your waist, this belt that can hold all of your you know your, your breastplate, your your sword, your dagger, whatever it is, all the equipment that you need, whatever job you're doing, you need to have that belt tied tight. And Paul is saying here that it's really this this belt of truth, the truth of God. You can think of, even in the same context, Ephesians 4, verse 4. One body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is what Paul is talking about when he says the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the life, and the truth. I think here, basically, Paul is saying that there is this divine, authoritative, true narrative that God has about the universe and about life and about himself and about you that we need to fasten around our whole selves, our, our mind, our heart, all that we are. So we have a true narrative and not a false narrative because Satan and sin and the world will present a certain narrative about the universe, about life, about everything. And we either follow this narrative or we follow God's narrative, the truth. Which is it that we follow? And so here, Paul is saying, first of all, if you really want to stand victorious and fight Satan and fight temptation and win, you have to believe the, the right things. You have to understand and believe what is true, what has been given to us in the written word of God. 
One of my favorite detective shows, I think, is, is Monk. And if you've ever watched Monk, there toward the end, I think almost every time, he'll go, this is what happened. Something like that. And then he gives the narrative of what truly happened. And then you're like, okay, you know, I, either I saw that or I, I never, never understood that. In a sense, Paul here is saying that it's the truth, the Bible, is what really happened. What happened, what is happening, and what will happen is written in the Word of God. It's not a politician. It's not even a church. It's not even the CDC that determines the future. It's who? God. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit. No, what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. This is the Bible. And this, I believe, is what God is saying to this church in Ephesus and to all of us. Wrap yourself and fasten your mind and be sure that you are bound by what is really, really true. And we know what is really, really true by the Bible. Bind yourself with the Bible. Now, how would this help us? Practically, then how does this help us? What maybe just one or two examples. Satan attacks us, this is from John Owen, mainly by fraud or force, either with power or by deceit. And sometimes we can think, I, I can think, well, this temptation is too powerful. I, I can't overcome this temptation. I, I I, I don't have the strength. I, I'm not able to have victory over this. I can't. Well, that's actually a lie. Satan's lying to you. Sin is lying to you. And much of Ephesians, or a large part of it, is written in order to help these people and to us to understand that in Christ I have the power to overcome any sin, any temptation that my flesh or Satan throws my way. So it's not an issue of me being overpowered. It's an issue of me not being obedient and faithful and trusting God. For example, Ephesians 1, verse 18, talks about that the eyes of our heart, Paul's praying the eyes of our heart would be opened, verse 19, that we would understand, that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. This power that we have in Christ was so powerful that even when he died, he rose again, and he's at the right-hand side, verse 20, of God the Father. And he's been far above, he's been placed far above all rule and authority, so that every name, every so-called power, is underneath the feet of Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 22. And then Paul says, in the same way, you also were dead in your sins and trespasses. You even walked according to the prince of the power of the earth that now works in the sons of disobedience. You were even by nature a children of wrath. But God rose you up and made you alive and seated you at, in Christ in the heavenlies. And that power that is Christ is now your power. And I'm in chapter 2. So that even it says in chapter 2, verse 10, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus that God has made you, this new creature to do good works. 
So that powerful resurrection of Christ where he overcome judgment and sin and, and Satan. And now he gives that type of resurrection power to you and I. So that we are able. We are able. And so this is the true narrative. If you're in Christ, there's not one temptation in your life that you can't overcome. This is why 1 Corinthians 10.13 says what? No temptation has seized you, which is uncommon to man, but God would give you all that you need so you can stand up underneath it. This is the truth. And it's not just that we in Christ are able to do, but even, of course, God is able to do. This is the true narrative, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That's Ephesians 3.20. Recently I heard a person, I'm not judging him, I love him, but nobody here, talking about a church building program that God is able to do beyond all that we ask or think or imagine. And so God can help us with the new church building program. That's true. Of course God can. But this verse in Ephesians 3.20 is not talking primarily about a church building program in terms of concrete. It's talking about God building you up into Christ-likeness, overcoming Satan and sin and temptation in your life. And God is able to do that, whatever temptation it is. And so what I am seeking to say to you and to explain is that here in Ephesians six fourteen, when it says, having girded your loins with truth, it is the idea that we need to be sure the narrative that we believe about God and ourself and the past and the present and the future is from the word of truth. Don't believe your own lies. Don't believe the lies of the world. Don't believe the lies of Satan. Believe God's truth. We can't fight well we can't use the sword, we can't use the shield, we can't use our helmet, we can't use the breastplate, we can't use our shoes if we're not believing what God has said. And so that's first. Second, a second means. First, we said, be sure your worldview is God's worldview. Take God's worldview and be sure that you fasten that to your head. Read the word, meditate upon the word, believe the word. And then there's also a second means to be able to, to stand and not, not to get knocked down by the devil. And that's this. By appropriating the peace that Christ bought for you, appropriating the peace that God bought for you. It's very interesting. Basically, Paul is saying the only way that you can fight the devil is by the peace that Christ gives you. You have to fight. You have to use the sword, the shield, the helmet, the, the breastplate. You have to use the right kind of shoes. And you fight by using the peace that Christ gives. What is this? Well, Paul is here talking about these shoes. We've already talked about the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, shod or, or put on your feet with the readiness, the preparation of the gospel of peace. What is this? Have you ever, I hope you have not, have you ever hiked in snow and all you brought were just basic tennis shoes? See, I'm from Florida. <laughs> I had no idea. And I was up in the Sierras in California, and we'd go up there and go hiking sometimes when I was in college. 
and sleep the night in the sleeping bags in the snow. And it's pretty quick I learned, you know, if the snow is deep, it may not be the wisest idea just to wear sneakers. <laughs> Shoes get wet, your feet get really, really cold. And what happens if you kept doing that, even for a length of time and it's below freezing? What could happen to your feet? Yeah, and if you kept doing that, in some situations, you could, you could die. You could get your feet amputated and then die. Footwear matters. <laughs> Shoes matter. The Roman soldiers mattered for them because on their shoes they would have a type of nail that they could put into their shoes that would come down like this. And so when they were attacked by an enemy, the enemy was charging at them, they could stick in their shoes down in the ground like cleats. How many of you worn cleats in baseball or football or golf? Do you wear cleats in bowling? No, I don't think you, you can't wear cleats in bowling. <laughs> but in other sports, you wear cleats and you dig, the, you know, you dig in. And that's what the Roman soldiers would do. Get those spikes down on the ground. Here comes the enemy. I'm going to stand. And so this is the picture that Paul is painting for us. But these shoes are special shoes. They're gospel shoes. You look at verse 15. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners and rose again. And if you have this repentant trust, if you turn from self and trust Jesus Christ alone, you can be forgiven and be saved. I was at a laundromat, not recently, this was before I was married, and there was a young man in there and he was evangelizing. And so that encouraged me that he was evangelizing. So he came up to me and he asked if he could talk to me and I said yes. And he said that he wanted to share the gospel with me. I said, what, what is the gospel? And he said, it's to do the will of God. I said, what's the will of God? He said, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. I said, is that the gospel? He said, yes, that's the gospel. And so I said, actually, that's not the gospel. You can't do that. I can't do that. He had never really truly heard the gospel before. The gospel is not what you can do to prove anything to God, but the gospel is that Christ did what you could not do, live a perfect life, died a perfect substitutionary atonement on the cross, rose again. And if you trust him, you can be saved. Anybody's sin can be forgiven. That's the good news. And so here Paul is saying, that's the kind of shoes you need to wear because it's only those kind of shoes, only gospel shoes that can produce peace with God. Look at the passage. Put on your feet, basically, put shoes on your feet that are the gospel of peace. It's only the gospel that can produce true biblical peace. Peace with God comes from trusting the gospel. It's funny, not funny, it's haha, but funny in terms of ironic that certainly in Christ we want to learn more than the gospel, the good news, but we never go beyond the gospel. And to fight Satan and sin, we have to use the gospel. And we have to be sure that our feet, as it were, are grounded in the gospel. And this piece here, and this passage is not just... 
a treaty, let's say, between God and you where he says, no longer you are under my wrath. Ephesians 2, 3 says, before you were saved, before you were born again, at the end, it says, Ephesians 2, 3, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest, right? The scripture teaches if you're not in Christ, if you're out of Christ, then you're under the wrath of God. God has this blazing canon of his wrath on all those that suppress the truth and unrighteousness and ungodliness, and that's anybody that doesn't know Jesus. They're under the wrath of God. We're born under God's wrath. But God chooses to love us, sent Christ, gives us his grace, we repent, and then we're in his peace. But this peace is not just God saying, I'm not going to damn you to hell anymore. No longer are you under my wrath. That's true, but this peace here that the Bible talks about is not just God canceling wrath, but it's God not just simply saying, I have a treaty with you, you know, I'm not going to fight with you, you're not going to fight with me. Rather, it's a covenant, it's a commitment to do good to you. So peace with God is not God just simply saying, okay, I'm not going to send you to hell. It's God saying, I'm not going to send you to hell, but because of Christ, because of Christ, I'm going to target you every day for the rest of your life with love and grace. And that's just the beginning. Wait till you get to heaven. That's the peace of God. That's what peace is. That's what God's peace is, is that he, by his death, he gave you life. By his life, he's going to bring you even more things that are wonderful and great and incredible. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and following, bear this out. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into his grace, and in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, verse 3, but anything that comes into our life, tribulation, perseverance, perseverance, proof and character, proof and character, hope. And this hope's not going to disappoint because we have the love of God in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been proven by Christ dying on the cross for us. Again, this peace of God is, it is well with my soul, not just because God has canceled hell for me, which is true. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But it's also that God is choosing to treat me as his child, his favorite child, with with love and, and grace and mercy. David knew this, and that's why in Psalm 23, he talks about that his head is anointed with oil, his cup overflows, and goodness and loving kindness will pursue him, chase after him all the days of his life. This is truly the peace of God, a commitment to not just cease hostility with you, but to love you. This is how we fight the devil. I have peace. I'm in a love relationship with God where he loves me like crazy, not because of my commitment to him, but because of Christ's commitment was 100% faithful to God. Furthermore, it talks about here the preparation or the readiness of the gospel of peace. What is this talking about? Well, the idea basically for the soldier would be he would be ready to fight, to withstand that onslaught. He could have his shield up, his sword out, his spear out. If he had the shoes, the right shoes on and he was digging into the ground, then he was prepared. He was ready to fight. 
Bring it on. Because I got my shoes really dug down deep. But here, this readiness is produced out of the gospel of peace. That is here. It's not this idea. It's not because you're so committed to evangelizing, therefore you can fight Satan. It's not because you evangelize so much, then you're prepared to battle temptation. That's not really the idea. The idea here is because you are overwhelmed in adoring, acquiescing to, acknowledging the peace of God through Christ in your life, because you're grounded in his love for you based upon what Christ did through faith, that makes you ready. You're ready to fight Satan, not because of your faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. To God, Christ's faithfulness to God and to you. Practically then, what does this look like? What does this mean? This is the how. I have to be careful, and maybe it's, well, not maybe, it's still these uh, remnants of remaining sin and legalism in my life, but my temptation can be that when I sin, my thought can be, Bang! God's going to whack me. You've been to the fair? Have you gone to the fair recently and played whack-a-mole? Is that God? When you sin, God's going to go, Bang! Wake up, cockroach! Gosh, I can't believe you. You did it again. That's the 14,365.5 time you've done that, Thomas. What's going on? I'm talking about me, not my son. <laughs> Is that our God? That, you know, he's just, he's like, man, I'm going to take off my belt. I, 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 I'm just ready for you, Tom. Is that our God? That's not our God. No. He's committed to you with love and grace and mercy and patience. Oh, he might chastise you and discipline you, but it's always with grace and mercy and love and kindness. Because if I'm fighting Satan and I think if I blow it, then not only is Satan going to get me, God's also going to get me. I have no hope. So then I, I forget it. Forget everything, forget God, forget my family, forget all of you. Just forget it. That could be an attitude, right? I think sometimes we could be tempted that way. No, God's not a whack-a-mole. He loves you. You're in Christ. He loves you. He's the best father there ever is or could be or ever will be. He's perfect in love and grace. Satan wants us to be frazzled and paralyzed by having wrong views of God. And so we have this true narrative of God. And so we know I have a peaceful relationship. He, he loves me and is more at peace with me than my own parents could ever be. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Glory to God. So, you know, when you sin and you fall, use it as a time of worship afterwards. Lord, you still love me. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Additionally, you know, we can live in a life that is crazy, that's, that's heavy, 
you know, Hevel from the book of Ecclesiastes, the vanity of vanities, life is like a, a mist or a smoke here today and gone. And it seems that you go through one trial and then you go through another trial and another trial. And there's hardly peace in this world and in our lives. You go through one trial. I got through that trial. Thank you, Lord. And then soon after that, what happens? One more trial. So before Lisa's father passed away, he passed away at 1030, one, one week from today. Before that happened, it was on Thursday, and we were planning on, on coming to camp. But Thomas was coughing, so we're thinking maybe we should wait one day. And then hospice called, basically. We did a FaceTime with hospice. And they said, uh, you need to come now. So we said, okay, Lisa, get a ticket. Forget about camp. <laughs> Camp's not a priority. You go see your your daddy. So we got in the car, the kids and I, took her to the airport, dropped her off, and then we're on Interstate 5 coming home, stretch talking, about to get onto the 405 East. When bang, we were in line. Uh, we were stopped. Uh, the kids and I were hit by a drunk driver in our car from the rear. Bang! Long story, but the drunk driver, the car is not banged up that bad. We're fine. But the drunk driver got arrested and had to go to jail. What in the world? We had just dropped off my beloved wife so she could go see her daddy who was about to die. I don't need another trial in my life. My son is coughing. I don't need something else to go wrong. And then, bang! <laughs> what's going on? Lord, what's going on? It is well with my soul. <laughs> there is peace. Not because anybody is as great or super spiritual. Where else can you go when all that happens in one day? Where else are, are you going to go? What else are you going to say? Is Satan in control? No. Am I in control? Definitely not. God's in control. He has a plan. And goodness and loving kindness shall pursue me all the days of my life. I don't know how this is going to work out. I still don't know what's going to happen with insurance companies. Who knows? The guy at first didn't have insurance. Now he does have insurance. Who knows? I, I have no idea. It is well with my soul because the most important person in the universe loves me and is for me and is fighting for me, not because I'm such a good person, but because Christ is such a good person. And he saved me and put me in Christ. My covenant commitment relationship with God, by which he places his favor on me, is based not in my commitment, but Christ's commitment that he paid for with his blood. So I can say, peace. My soul is at peace because of Christ and because of God's peace and favor and love. Let the storm rage. Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Lord. It's not easy. It's rough. God's in control. And I would say one of the best things that helped me was just you know being at camp and not able to use the cell phone. So at times, in order to get to the place where we can just 
God's in control. God's for me. Christ is with me. Where you can just breathe. Take, turn off your dumb phone. It's not a smartphone. It's a dumb phone. Turn it off. Put it away. Go on a walk for one hour. Memorize Psalm 23. Recite it to yourself and praise him and give him glory. And that will help you to have peace. God will give you peace. Turn off the cell phone. Go on a walk. Read, memorize Psalm 23 to yourself. He pursue you with loving kindness and goodness all the days of your life. And one day, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My mom is there. Many aunts and uncles are there. Many friends of mine are there. Some of your dear relatives, husbands and fathers and mothers are there in the house of the Lord forever. That gives me peace. Thank you, Lord. That's one of the means by which we can fight Satan's temptations. I have peace with God because of Jesus, both spiritually and physically, in the past and the present and the future. It's all wrapped up in the blood and the work, death and resurrection of Jesus in the gospel. Thank you, Lord. I have peace. Thank you. There is a third means that we'll take some time to look at this morning. We stand against Satan by trusting God's promises like they are a shield. And you can see this in the passage. A more literal translation in verse 16 would be, not in addition, but rather in all things, or a paraphrase, in all situations, taking up the shield of faith would be, I think, a good paraphrase. So what is this talking about? Well, not to get distracted and get into it too much, but Captain America, his shield is a second-class shield. Second-class shield. Not because it's just now made out of vibranium. If you go back about 20 years ago and read the Marvel Universe, Captain America's shield, today they say it was just vibranium. No, 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 no. It was made out of adamantium and vibranium. So, Wolverine's claws, that's adamantium. It's all make-believe. They're undestructible. Vibranium can take a blow and receive that blow and send it back on the other person. Okay, That's truly what Captain America's shield and the Marvel Universe was made up of. Truly. So, some of you know about Galactus, you know Thanos, you know the the Hulk, all these, they can... Bang! Galactus could step on Captain America's shield and Captain America would be going like... <laughs> That's why Captain America could fight Kovac. Probably never you know about Kovac. He could fight him to a standstill. Why? Because of the indestructible shield that could absorb any impact. It could be a meteor. And Captain America would be like... <laughs> the true shield. Well, that kind of shield is a second-class shield compared to your shield. It is. Compared to the shield that you have, by faith, Captain America's field is second class. Yours is more powerful. This is what Paul is saying in verse 16. When Satan comes, you have a shield of faith which is divinely powerful. They can stop and put out any of the fiery darts from Satan. In the Old Testament, 
Genesis 15.1 says that God is your shield. Yeah, that's more powerful than any man-made shield. God is your shield. Here, it's the shield of faith. And this is not faith in faith. It's, it's faith in God. It's this relishing, relinquishing, and realizing all that God is for us in Christ. It's a powerful shield. Remember what Jesus said. If your faith is the size of a, the size of a what? Mustard seed. Then you can move mountains. Now, you know, that was an illustration that Jesus was giving, saying that, that your faith is very powerful. How big does your faith have to be to do something really powerful? Is your faith the size of a bowling ball? Is your faith the size of a football? Is your faith the size of a softball? Is your faith the size of a baseball? Does anybody, would anybody say, I have the faith the size of a baseball? Come on. <laughs> You've known Jesus for a while. Isn't your faith the size of a baseball? Is your faith the size of an orange? An apple? A grape? A raisin? Does anybody have the faith the size of a raisin? Maybe we would say, I have the faith the size of a mustard seed. You know, I've, I've picked up gardening the past couple of years. I'm still horrible at gardening. But some of the seeds, you know, they are so... They're so tiny. So sometimes I'll put like four or five like right in the same hole. And then I think that creates a lot of problems. <laughs> but these seeds are super tiny. And so Jesus is saying, even if your faith is super tiny, it's powerful. Would we say that we have tiny faith? Let's boast. Let's boast in our tiny faith. Our faith is in one sense tiny. But the object of our faith is what? Huge, great, ginormous. Our faith can be small. But the small faith that we have is in this object and this person that is the most powerful and most loving and kind and dynamic. The, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the divine warrior, the lamb, the God, the lion, Jesus Christ. Because our tiny faith is in him, then by faith we can do all things in Christ. And so then we have this mighty shield, not faith and our faith. Um, I have such a great faith. No, Lord, help my unbelief. My, my faith is small, but what I have, it's in you. And you're the greatest. And therefore, by his grace, I can stand. So then practically, how, how is this done? Just one example, and this is especially relevant to me with uh, concern and anxiety for mom and my family over dad's passing. Can, there can be some anxiety and some worry and what's going to happen and, and, and what's going on. And how, how do we deal just with one temptation, concern or, or anxiety? How do we have a shield of faith? 
when there's anxiety, maybe fear, all this is coming at you, how do you use the shield of faith? My faith is not in my faith. My faith is in Christ Jesus, the Lord, the Lion and Lamb of God. Thank you, Lord. It's in him. Well, practically, what does this look like? Here's some examples. So if Satan sends the flaming arrow and dart of anxiety because of physical needs. Raise the shield of Philippians 4.19. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Raise the shield and Philippians 4.19, my God will supply everything I need. Raise the shield of Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Raise that shield against the flaming arrow. Raise it quickly. It's coming. It's massive. You've seen movies or shows or pictures. All these flaming darts. Get behind Philippians 4.19. This is the only place I'm running. And my God will supply all my needs. If it's a legitimate need, and today is not the day I die, then God's going to give me all that I need. And so you hide. Maybe it's not necessarily a physical need. Maybe it's the physical need. Maybe it is actual death. Your death. Or the death of a loved one. And so you take that shield of faith and you hide underneath it. You know, maybe, you know, you've known it's going to happen to you or to somebody that you love. And so you hide in Philippians 121. To live is Christ. To die is, is gain. Either it's true or it's not. Is it true? That to live is Christ and to die is gain? The Bible says it's true. Why is it true? Because Revelation chapter 22, 3 and 4 says they will see his face and they will reign forever and ever. That's amazing. So if a believer dies, he's going to reign with Christ and they're going to see Jesus and, and be perfected and one day glorified with their a brand new body. So you hide underneath that shield. This is what I believe, Lord. Protect me. I'm going to hide here underneath this shield. I'm trusting you, Jesus. And then every day, bring up the shield. All those arrows of doubt and distrust and despair are coming because your loved one, you yourself, is dying. You put up the shield of faith. I believe Ephesians 1.21 to die is to gain. And you're trusting God. You're hiding in the shield of faith. Maybe it's actual physical pain. Some of you have an actual physical pain. I understand. It can be difficult having physical pain that never leaves and can increase. What do you do? It can be weary on your body and soul. Can I keep going faithfully, Lord, and, and not despair and not curse you? Yes, I can, because I'm hiding in this shield of faith. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ dwells in me. Lord, I, I'm weak. I'm in pain. My, my body is falling apart. It's a great opportunity to boast in your grace. You're, you're sufficient, Lord. And though, 2 Corinthians 4.16, though the outer man is decaying, my inner man is being renewed day by day. And so I'm going to hide. And, and this underneath this shield of faith, thank you, Lord. It, it could be a future decision. How, how do you know 
what to do in the future for your kids, for yourself, where to live, where to go to, where to, go to school, when to retire, what job to get, what, what's going to happen, who to marry, who to not to marry. And so you hide under this shield of faith. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your path. Hide underneath that shield. What if you make the wrong decision? Have you ever made a bad decision? <laughs> I have. You make some bad decisions in life. What do you do? Give up? No, shield the faith, Romans 8, 28. And God's able to cause all things to work together for good. For those that love God and call according to his purpose. I'm going to hide underneath that shield even when I make a stupid decision. God can work it out for his grace, by his grace, for his glory, and for my good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And so you're hiding underneath this shield. Maybe it's anxiety about your sin. Your sin is plaguing you. It's such a burden to your heart. It can devastate you. So you hide underneath the shield of 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus forgives me of all my sin. And that's where I hide. To fight well, you need the shield of faith. Take it and never put it down. To fight well, you need the shield of faith. Take it and never put it down. So we come back now at the end. We come back to the very beginning. Our fight isn't with each other. It's not with another church. It's not even with your neighbors. Primarily, it's with sin and Satan. What benefit do sin and Satan really give you if you follow them and listen to them? What true benefit do they really give you? Nothing. In fact, less than nothing. Therefore, submit to God, trust Jesus Christ, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, may you take these truths and hammer them into our heart. May we believe your narrative. May we rely on the peace that Christ bought. And may we trust in your promises to fight our remaining sin and the devil. We give you glory. We give you praise. Thank you, Lord. Amen.